it's been a while since we've been able to dive into 1 Thessalonians. So that's where we are as 1 Thessalonians. If you have your Bible, go ahead and turn to chapter 4. That's where we're going to be starting for the night. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Last week we did a bit of a different thing, right? We had this sort of live stream discussion panel video thing where we talked about it was sort of related to missions, but we also talked about like the future of the church and things like that. That was sort of fun. And then two weeks ago, we had a message on worship. And we talked about what worship is and how God sees worship and things like that. So it's been like three weeks now since we've been in First Thessalonians, right? Um, I'm going to give you just a refresher of some of the things that we've talked about in the the first three chapters. Um, Paul has talked about preaching the gospel. He's talked about discipleship. He's talked about burdening yourself for others. He's talked about what it means to love others. Uh, We spent several weeks doing some self-evaluation questions even, where we were asking ourselves questions and seeing if we lived up to those things. And that already right there is a lot, right? A lot of little topics and a lot of little separate things that we've been diving into, but they all add up to our bigger theme. Our bigger theme for this series of 1 Thessalonians has been living a life defined by the gospel. That's been the the whole point of going through this because, as I've mentioned before, um, the Thessalonians were a group of people that Paul praised. It was a group of people that Paul acknowledged that they were doing good things. He acknowledged all the work that had been done in them and through them. He acknowledged all the things that were going on in the people around them because of the gospel that was being lived out by the lives of the Thessalonians. And that's like all the first three chapters covers all of those things. And now we find ourselves at the beginning of chapter four where he is saying, hey, all those things that you've done, all the things you've done to the people around you and within yourselves, all the things God is doing, keep on doing those and do those more and more. So that's what I'm going with for the sort of title for today's message is more and more. Because that's the theme that we find in this little chunk of chapter 4 that, that Paul is going through right here. It's the theme for the message because that's the theme that he has. And I want to take a moment and discuss the phrase more and more. Um, have, have any of you ever seen The Sandlot? I know it's starting to get to be a pretty old movie, but I consider it a classic. Uh, who's seen The Sandlot? All right. Most of you, and you probably uh, have heard many of the quotes, but the one that immediately comes to my mind when talking about more is the s'mores scene, right? Where Smalls is joining them up in the the treehouse, and they're like, you want a s'more? And he's like, how can I have a s'more or something if I haven't had anything, right? This concept of um, he is confused because they're saying, do you want more? And he hasn't had anything in the first place. And... That's sort of the statement I want to start with tonight is that Paul is talking about all these things that are going on in the lives of the Thessalonians and he's encouraging him to do it more. But, and that's, that's what I'm going to be preaching through tonight because I'm going to be encouraging you to do these things more and more. But that can't happen if those aren't in your life already. That can't happen 
if you aren't living your life defined by the gospel and you're not even trying, if you don't even care. So I'm going to make that aside and we'll, we'll come back to talking about that. But if that's you right now, it's not too late to just spend a moment as I'm starting into this and think like, Lord, I know that hasn't been me, but I want that to be me. And I would love to do the things that the Thessalonians are doing. And I would love to love you. Like, it's okay right now. If that hasn't been you, it's okay to think about that and make it you right now and let these things apply to you. So I'm going to dive into that with the passage being more and more. And the first point is this. Please God more and more. Please God more and more. And I take that directly from verse 1. Like Paul just finished at the end of chapter 3 praying for them. Remember I mentioned a, a few weeks ago that a, a discipler is, is somebody that prays for those that uh, he is discipling. And after he finishes up praying for them, he dives into his conclusion and says, Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you received from us how you ought to walk and to please God just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. So Paul is saying that he and his companions taught the Thessalonians two things. One, he taught he and them taught the Thessalonians how to walk with God. And they also taught them how to please God. Those are the two things. And, and he says, like, you're doing those things, and I want you to keep on doing those things. And, and this point, in, in one sense, is practical, because he's saying, like, hey, go do this, right? That's a, that's a practical application. They can see it, and they can do it, and that's, that's good for us to hear. But in another sense, for us right now, with where we are and who we are, reading back into the Thessalonians and, and the letter, for us, this should be a motivational point. Like when we read to walk with God and to please God, let's take that as a reminder. A reminder that the God of creation, the God of the universe, is the God that desires to be in a relationship with you. And that God that wants to be in relation with you has a way that you can walk with him. He has a way that you can please him. And like I said before, this message won't have any impact on you tonight if you don't desire that. If you don't desire to walk with God and you don't desire to please God, everything I have to say is nothing tonight for you. But if you do want to walk with him and desire him and please him, then press in. Listen. This is just one way that we can be doing that. But if you think you're better off without him or you don't want to devote yourself to him, and the idea of pleasing this all-knowing, all-powerful God is, is foreign to you, I'm not going to have any impact tonight with you. But I believe, having known most of you, that you want to be here and you want to walk with God. You want to please God. And so we can gather together 
and head into the conclusion of 1 Thessalonians, just as we started the beginning of this book, looking at what God is doing through them and trying to model it in our lives, right? So that's the encouragement. Please God more and more. And then he continues with them in the next few verses. And we got a big chunk here, right? Verses 2 through 8. I'm going to go ahead and read them, and we'll dive into this last part of it right here. He says, For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things. As we told you beforehand, it's only warned you, for God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Okay, like I said, there's a lot there. So let's just, uh, let's just go ahead and dive into our second point, and that is be sanctified more and more. We're going to be continuing this next week with two more points, but this is the last point for tonight as an actual like point to write down. Uh, but there's so much to the statement, be sanctified. And sanctification is the whole point here for Paul. But in fact, he's saying that sanctification is God's whole point in your life. Like that's God's will for your life is that you would be sanctified. So let's just understand the definition of what it means to be sanctified. The definition of sanctified is literally the process of making somebody holy. Which is why Paul, in verses 7 and 8, what we just finished there, verses 7 and 8, says that God hasn't called you to be impure. That is not the calling on your life. That is not what the Lord has for you. He has not called you to be impure. But in fact, he has called you to be holy. And if you're treasuring impurity above holiness... If you're allowing that to have the ultimate goal in your life, if you would rather spend your time and you desire being made in the image of sin rather than being made in the image of God, then what Paul says is that you disregard God himself. Some heavy stuff to hit with right off the bat, I know. But we're starting to get into Paul's final urgings to them. The last things he wants to make sure that they know before he ends his statements to them. But it says that if that's how we live our life and that's what we love, we disregard God himself, the God that loves us so much to put his Holy Spirit in us. The God that loves us so much that when he says, I want you to be holy, he literally gives us the thing that can allow us to be holy. He gives us the spirit that is our helper, that is the one that does the sanctifying work. A God that loves us so much that when he tells us to do something, he actually equips us to be able to do it. So what's that process look like? Sanctification, like what, what does that actually look like? It means tackling the sin that tears you apart from God. 
It means actually weeding that out. And, and Paul, I mean, he goes like right for the jugular here. Like he goes for the most dangerous sin against our bodies, the most damaging to our spirits. And he says that the will of God in your sanctification is this, that you would abstain from sexual immorality. And there it is. I told you we would talk about it. I told you we would get to it. I mean, we were bound to talk about it at, at some point, right? And uh, this is the spot. Um, it's one of the most uncomfortable things to bring up sometimes. Uh, it's certainly the thing that we should probably talk about the most in accountability, but it's also the thing that we usually avoid the most in accountability. It's the thing that's often on many people's minds and yet never actually crosses their lips for things that they want to talk about, things that they might need to talk about. And our culture itself idolizes it. And, and I'm not just talking about how our culture idolizes it, like in the media and on TV and in advertisements and the way that we talk and the way that we interact with one another. Like, I'm talking about like right now in our culture, like we live in a world where people identify who they are. Everything that they are, they identify based on who they like to have sex with. They'll base their entire life on who they prefer to have sex with. We find our identities in that. And, and I think you guys can see, I mean, we just went through an election. Well, we're still sort of going through an election. It seems like it's never going to end. But we just went through an election, right, where one of the huge points is the validation of people that want to be validated for who they prefer to have sex with. It's a driving divide in our country. But it's not just now that this has happened. It's not just our country and it's not just this time that sex and the idea of who we have sex with and how we have sex and when we have sex, it's not just now that that dominates the mind of our world and our culture. It did it back then too which is exactly why Paul is talking about this stuff. This is not new to the world. This is not new to God's people to struggle with these things. This is not some brand new thing to come about in 2020 or the 20th century. Sex and everything related to it is at the center of our culture. So let's go ahead and define what Paul talks about as sexual immorality. That'll help us, right? What is it? Simply put, it's anything that relates to sex, anything that relates to sex that happens outside of God's intended purpose for it. That is marriage. It's sex and sex-like things that happen outside of marriage. That's sexual morality. And God has an intention for sex. Like God has something, he has purpose in it. Sex is meant to glorify him. It's meant to be a gift to man. It's meant to reveal to man just how good of a God and just how great of a creator that he is. It's meant to be something that glorifies him in our relationships, helps us understand him more, helps us understand ourselves more, meant to be something that unites two people. 
I was doing some research in this, right? As I was diving through, just trying to figure out how we're gonna sort of comprehend all this, and I wanna talk about the purpose. And I, I actually found this quote that I'm just gonna to read to you. It's a bit longer, but it's by C.S. Lewis. If you don't know who that is, he wrote the Chronicles of Narnia. He's also a, a, was a big Christian apologist. He's written several books on different Christian topics. Um, and he had this to say. The Christian idea of marriage is based on Christ's words that a man and wife are to be regarded as a single organism. For that is what the words one flesh mean. And the Christians believe that when he said this, he was not expressing a sentiment, but he was stating a fact, just as one is stating a fact when they say that a lock and key are one mechanism, or that a violin and a bow are one musical instrument. The inventor of the human machine, so God, right? The inventor of the human machine was telling us that its two halves, the male and the female, were made to be combined together in pairs, not simply on the sexual level, but totally and absolutely combined. Sexual intercourse outside of marriage is that those who indulge in it are trying to isolate one kind of union, the sexual, from all other kinds of union, which were intended to all go together. The Christian attitude does not mean that there's anything wrong with sexual pleasure any more than there is anything wrong in the pleasure of eating. It means that you must not isolate that pleasure and try to get it by itself any more than you ought to try to get the pleasure of taste without swallowing and digesting just by chewing things and spitting them out again. So to summarize, he's saying those who try to isolate sex outside of marriage is like those that try to get the pleasure of food just by chewing it and spitting it back out without actually swallowing it. It's isolating something that it's not meant to do and it's taking it outside of something. So that, that's like the thing that Paul is reminding them about, right? I know it's deep, I know it's hard, but that's what he's saying to them. He's saying that the Lord's will is that they would abstain from that. That they would abstain, and the definition of abstain is literally to restrain yourself from enjoying or, uh, enjoying or doing something. Paul reminds us, and then like he, he keeps on going. I mean, he goes even further, and he's not just talking about abstaining from sexual morality, but he adds to that, that each one of us needs to know how to control our own bodies in holiness and in honor. Now, I want you to note the word control here. Like, Paul didn't say that we shouldn't desire it. He didn't say that it wasn't going to be a struggle. In fact, he's acknowledging that it's a struggle by saying that we need to control it. He's acknowledging that there will come a time when it needs to be put under control. Just like a river has a natural way it's going to go. It has things. It's going to follow the path of least resistance. It's going to go with gravity. There are things that it's going to naturally do and that things are going to naturally come up, but we can control rivers, right? We dam them. We move them. We bury them. We bring them up. There are ways that we can take this thing that naturally flows and control it and use it for good. The same goes with our flesh and our desires. There's going to be things that come up, but we can control them. 
like I mentioned before, through the Holy Spirit. Through the Holy Spirit, we can control those things. God gives us that ability. But our flesh, it, it yearns for things, right? Our, our flesh yearns for it, and, and the world that we live in, it encourages it. And I'm saying all these things, so I want them to come to your mind. Like TVs, movies, billboards, video games, like it, it doesn't matter. There are all these things that the world tells you are completely natural to want and to give into. And God says, nope, control it instead. But what, how does he say to control it? He says control it in holiness and control it in honor. Now, I don't know for you, but honor for me is like a weird thing to think about on this topic. Like to, to think that our body should be controlled in honor, it, it, it's a bit of a foreign concept because, because honor in our society is less prevalent. America is not built on an honor system. Not the way that their culture was built on an honor system. Like the idea of honor also comes with the idea of dishonor or shame. And the whole concept is that something you do will either bring honor or dishonor to a higher power. Now that that higher power could be different based on where you live. Sometimes that can be uh, your parents, that can be your family name, that can be your clan, that can be your country, that can be your nation. Whatever it may be, there can be a higher, there should be and will be a higher power involved with honor. But we, we don't live like that, right? We don't we don't live controlled by the idea of honor and dishonor upon our higher powers. It's just not innate in Americans as much. But it was certainly prevalent in the people in Scripture, right? Not only in the Mediterranean culture and, and the Greeks and the Romans there, but like even in Jewish culture. So King Saul, who was the first king of Israel, he was the one right before King David, He's a really great example of how much honor meant to the Jewish people. So if you don't know how King Saul died, you can go to 1 Chronicles 31 if you want at some point. He died because he led his army against the Philistines, and the Philistines won. And he was shamed as their king. He was dishonored because he brought dishonor upon his God and upon his nation. And so he's like... I need to die. I'm going to die, and I will not suffer the dishonor of having a Philistine kill me. So he turns to his cupbearer, his armor bearer, and he's like, kill me. You kill me. At least I won't be killed by a Philistine. Then. And the armor bearer's like, no way, man. I'm not going to kill you. So he instead kills himself on his sword. Because the idea of dishonoring his own name by being killed by a Philistine was unbearable for him. And he would have rather fallen on his own sword than suffer the dishonor of being killed by a Philistine. Like that should just give you a little idea of how much honor means to them. So when Paul says, control your body in honor, the idea is that how you control your body 
does bring honor or dishonor to God. That's something that we like to fight a lot of times. It's something that we like to sort of push back and ignore. But that's what the honor system means. That we do it in honor. That's the proper thinking of our sin. So, so you just got to ask your question. Like when I control my body, however I control it to be, am I giving honor to God as one of his children? someone that's chosen, as someone that is his? Or am I bringing dishonor to him like a Gentile? Like someone that doesn't know him? Someone that doesn't belong to him? Someone that isn't his child? That's the comparison Paul brings right here. He says, verse 5, right there, that if you let passion and lust control your body rather than honor, you are like the Gentile what does it say? Who doesn't know God. And then he goes into not letting the sin be committed against your brother or your sister, right? And then he starts getting specific about adultery and things like that. So clearly, like, there was something going on in the Thessalonians that he knew about that was related to adultery, and he wanted to talk about that because he wanted to make sure that they understood that that's what he was talking about. So a lot, of, a lot of serious stuff here. I know I've said that a few times. But here's how it relates to you. I've, I've listed all the stuff Paul says. Here's how it relates to you. Y'all are college age. Whether you're in college or you're working or you're all around the age that you're going to have the most serious relationships you've ever been in and the most freedom you've ever had. And that can be a really dangerous mix. And so what this means for you is it's for you. What I mean by that is I don't know your specific situations. I don't know what you struggle with. I don't know what questions you might have. But I I pray that as I've talked to you about what this passage means and what it meant for the Thessalonians, that you relate. That in some way you see this and you see in your life where you're not controlling your body for the honor of the Lord. And that you decide, you know what, I want to be honorable to him and I want to be like one that knows God, not one that doesn't know God. So that self-evaluation, but here's the other part. I mentioned it a couple times. The Holy Spirit. It is so easy to feel so defeated by this, guys. With it being one of the greatest sins we can commit against our body, it comes with some of the greatest shame. It's the thing we never want to talk about. It's the thing we will beat ourselves up about. It's the thing that we will never let ourselves forget. And oftentimes we will never, ever even begin to allow God to speak to us about forgiveness on it. It says in this passage, God gave us the Holy Spirit. And the reason Paul mentions that, because he wants to remind you that Holy Spirit is meant to be in relationship with God. It's meant to help sanctify you. It's meant to work you through these things. So my encouragement is don't give up in it. Practicalities. Find someone to talk to about it. Get somebody accountable with you. One person at least 
just get to talking to them about it. Open it up in a way that you know they're going to hold you accountable. Control comes in a lot of different ways. And now it's on you guys to figure out how am I being called to control this? How am I being called to work these things out for my sanctification, to be more holy, to be more blameless, to be closer to God?